can you toss the dough? Can you, are you one of those? I can. People? That's very cool. I can toss dough. Um, I mean, I can still put pepperoni on pretty, pretty well. <laughs> the, the trick is getting it off the peel and into the oven without all the uh, ingredients just sliding off, right? <laughs> Welcome to The Workplace, where we talk about the cultures we work in and how to make them better for everyone. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with Dr. Alex Lovell about the 2021 Global Culture Report, the largest annual study of workplace culture. Forged in the midst of the global pandemic, the latest incarnation is perhaps the most essential piece of research for HR leaders looking toward the future as the crisis grinds slowly, painfully, to a halt. Using surveys and focus groups spanning 40,000 employees in 120 countries, Alex and his team at the OC Tanner Institute have coalesced their findings into a densely packed yet surprisingly easy read. With chapters on topics as relevant now as they were in the darkest days of the pandemic, this is definitely not the year to sleep on the Global Culture Report. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Dr. Alex Lovell is the Director of Research and Assessment at the O.C. Tanner Institute. He specializes in mixed-method and multi-method research, with a focus on blending qualitative research with survey and experimental data. In his day job, he consults with a wide variety of companies to develop and implement large-scale culture and recognition measurement plans. In his night job, he's Batman. Alex was interviewed by me, and as always, chatting with him was like having dinner at the home of your favorite professor. Far too much fun to be considered educational, yet you always leave having learned something. Let's get to it. Alex, welcome to the workplace. Andrew, thank you for having me. So a lot has happened since you were last on, huh? Uh, (laughs) That's probably an understatement. Probably for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, but... Maybe more for you. You got your doctorate. Congratulations! Uh, yes. It only took a pandemic for me to finish my dissertation. <laughs> you, if there wasn't a pandemic, you wouldn't have made it. Probably not. <laughs> well, there's a silver lining for everyone. Yes. Of course, you weren't always a doctor. You had to start somewhere. But I'm curious where you started. What was your first job? Well, my first job, I made pizzas at Papa Murphy's. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, actually, if we go back to first, first job, I taught at a Cub Scout camp um, oh, up Cottonwood Canyon. Yeah. That's interesting. A, a teacher right from the start. Yeah. I taught Map and Compass, which, I mean, it is really funny if you actually know me. Maps and compasses are not my forte, but... Uh, 
You're more of an adventurer of the mind right now. <laughs> I, I'm more of a, I just go where I want to. <laughs> <laughs> where we're going, we don't need roads. Is that what you, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I would agree mm. with that very much so. <laughs> well, that's interesting. You, you, so you were a teacher for a little bit, what, your first quote unquote job, and then you slung pizzas, huh? Slung pizzas. Do you remember what? The culture was like there. I know you were a kid, but do you have a, a sense of what it was like to work there? I really liked it. Um, the owners of the franchise were were really kind, um, and they they were really caring. Uh, as you probably can imagine, they focused purely on hiring you know youngsters like me because that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a target kind of hiring demographic for them so they were very cheap used labor. to working yeah <laughs> cheap labor they were very used to working um with us uh and, and being able to kind of help us through our our teenage life from a first responsibility perspective everything so i really loved them uh, my manager was really fantastic um mm. and, and and very very kind uh, so I, I I have nothing but really amazing things to say about that experience, and I can now make a pretty mean pizza. I wanted to talk to you about that because I also worked at a pizza place for several years. Uh, a little different; it was a, more of an upscale Italian place, but it's it's pizza, you know. Uh, can you toss the dough? Can you? Are you one of those? I can people. That's very cool. I can toss dough. Um, I mean, I can still put pepperoni on pretty, pretty well. <laughs> the, the trick is getting it off the peel and into the oven without all the uh, ingredients just sliding off, right? <laughs> <laughs> so jumping forward a little bit, a few years since your first job, it's 2021. And wouldn't you know it, the latest Global Culture Report is out and circulating. But uh, it's it's different from previous years, isn't it? A lot, a lot was different in the creation of it and in the topics that you covered. Right? Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about developing the report. So our our, our processes that we normally go through, our research processes, our methodology, uh, we blend both survey work and qualitative work, like focus groups and interviews, and, and most of that qualitative work uh, happens face to face. Uh, right. And so in an age of pandemic, it's not, it's not the most prudent thing to continue to hold. No, because when you were starting this, it was, it was the very beginning of the pandemic in the United States. It was, you probably start your research, what, February, March? Well, our, our, our research actually starts in October. So we start, you started in 2019. Yeah. Um, just to start prepping it. And then from there, uh, we do a first round. So our first round was done kind of more traditionally. Uh, and then our second round was done virtually. And I don't, I don't love virtual focus groups, but you just kind of make do with what you can. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, just everybody think about it for a moment. There's something very different about being in the room with somebody. You can, you can feel their, uh, you can see their body language. You can uh, make better use of their tone and understanding what what they what they're really saying or or saying between the lines that helps you kind of tease things out better. 
right? Um, I know when people lie to me in a focus group because their body <laughs> language, they're not accomplished, uh, you know, liars most, most usually, right? And so um, I can poke a little bit better because I can see them tense up. I can see them not necessarily tell me the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Hmm. And so that, that, uh, that's really important. So in a virtual environment, I don't necessarily have all of those tools readily available, but I mean, you, you do what you got to do. Right. And we got fantastic results and a side effect, um, a really good side effect of, of this or benefit is that it was are the most diverse focus groups we've had for culture report. Hmm. We always try um, to be diverse uh, how I screen, we ensure diversity, um, how, how we pick cities, we ensure diversity, but I'm still limited to that geographic area. I'm still Mm -hmm. limited to a lot of those different things. And so uh, that kind of ties my hands on what I can find in a particular city. And so these virtual focus groups actually allowed us to reach across so many different socioeconomic um, categories to really provide an inclusive approach more so than ever in our culture report research. And I think that's really important given that one of our topics last year was around inclusivity, inclusivity, um, inclusion and exclusion. So that, that's uh, this report this year. I really think I'm really proud of it. Uh, and I, I think that it really captures the root of what happened last year. Yeah. And what's still happening was inclusion, the most interesting part of the research process. Do you feel like you got the most uh, surprising uh, insights and findings, or was it more confirming what you might have suspected? Because inclusion was a hot topic; it was on people's minds uh, in in 2019 and, and early 2020. Obviously, the pandemic <laughs> eclipsed that a bit, but um, yeah, it it still was a, a real fertile place to uh, mine, wasn't it? Of course, I think I, I wouldn't necessarily say that our findings findings in this most recent report around inclusion were fundamentally revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a lot of really really good things have already been said about <laughs> inclusion, and, and and people simply didn't listen to those mm. good things or or wrote them off and said, "Well, that's not ha- my experience." and you know, you have to be pretty in touch with your privilege to really be able to take yourselves out of your shoes <laughs> and, uh, and that. So I, I think we, while we didn't have anything, I would say fundamentally revolutionary, I think we had some really interesting findings that added additional nuance to this conversation. So specifically, right, I'll, I'll call out this, this finding around um, exclusion versus inclusion, And in our qualitative, one of the most common things that we continued to find is that um, people treated exclusion as kind of the the opposite side of the coin of um, inclusion. So if you worked on minimizing exclusive policies, right, that you were automatically increasing inclusion, and and that's not not correct. I think there's there's initiatives that are targeted at both, right? At decreasing exclusion experiences and increasing inclusion experiences. But then there's a lot of policies that don't work on both. And, and, and we've kind of goaded ourselves into believing that we 
have made such substantial progress on inclusion, diversity, and equity by virtue of simply minimizing exclusion that we forgot that there was a whole lot more to that conversation. Yes, it's not just fixing the problems, it's creating new policies and processes that allow you to move beyond just that, well, it's kind of triage in a lot of ways. I think people were scrambling a little bit to figure out how to address their perhaps lack of inclusion or lack of even like thinking about it very often. Do you think they got it right? Or do you think companies are still in that space where they're, they may think that they've done enough? I think there's a blend. I, I think there's some companies, especially after the events of last year that realized <laughs> that what they have done has not really hit the mark um, yeah. fully, that it hasn't. And, and they're working towards that. And I applaud that. Um, on the flip side, I think there's a lot of companies that think that they've done it well and they really haven't. Uh, and if that's a, that's a leadership thing that needs to really start changing is that leaders need to become much more in tune with what's happening underneath the surface. So for example, we did a lot of work last year around microaggressions and most of the time people don't know that they're microaggressing each other. Right. It's, it's hard to pick out even if you're on the other end sometimes. Right. You can second guess yourself. I'm like, was that really, was that really a microaggression? Well, and, and, and many people that belong to a minority group get used to those microaggressions and, and try to suppress the feelings against it. And so they don't necessarily even correct people. You know, for example. It can be exhausting. You know, it can be exhausting. I'll give you an example personal, you know, I'm, I'm LGBT and, uh, depending on potentially religious affiliations, et cetera, will almost determine if you call my husband, my husband or my husband, my partner. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even though you full well know that we are legally married. Um, and, and so, you know, not to get into politics, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot to, to kind of talk about right there. But from my perspective, that's a pretty strong microaggression um, that I didn't realize was that way until I actually did a lot of research on, on mm. it. Right. I didn't realize because I had told myself all these comforting things about that. Right. I told myself that it really, you know, they, they would never mean it that way. They would never. <laughs> right? And they may not mean it that way consciously. Oh, for however, sure. <laughs> however, the impact is still felt by you and is still real, whether or not they are thinking of that as like, oh, I'm going to take them down a peg or two. And, and so it's good that you mentioned that because as leaders, we have to become even more in tune with what microaggressions look like and, and how those might uh, be part of our operating vocabulary um, in day-to-day -day life. I, I think uh, um, until you've done that work, you don't know. And if you don't know, then you continually subject your people to things that can be extraordinarily damaging. Mm. What about the trend of the sort of inclusivity town hall that happened where companies felt the need to talk to all of their uh, employees and sort of not air grievances, but at least appear to be listening and responsive? Do you think that that actually had an impact or was it more of a, a salve to make them feel a little bit better? I sure think it was nice. 
<laughs> but in the moment, it felt like you couldn't not have those. Right. And I think that's, you know, there was a lot of criticism from many sides saying it's a little too late to be, uh, to be, you know, just, just barely acknowledging that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think, I think it's a good step because you can only take small steps. Um, I, I think you can take large steps, but I think it's much harder to do that. So if you take small steps towards a more inclusive, a more equitable um, work environment, then you can start adjusting and, and, and making making progress towards uh, righting some of these wrongs that we we don't even know exist. So I think it was a good first step. I, I, I don't believe it was the last step. I think a lot of organizations did it and then didn't really step, it didn't actually continue that trend. And I think that in and of itself is problematic. A lot of employees that we spoke with, either via survey or interviews, often remarked at how insincere their um, diversity and inclusion programs felt uh, to them. I wonder if there are differences between generations in that. The people who were feeling that insincerity might have been more millennial, more Gen Z. Um, That's stereotyping and but that when you're talking about generations like that and generational differences you you do have to stereotype a little bit you have to lump people together did you did you see any of that difference when it comes to inclusion a little bit i think uh, millennials and generation z are more in tune with social issues than other generations on average right not to say that generation x or baby boomer generations are not in touch with that but on average Generation Z and millennials are much more in touch with those social issues. So yes, you're absolutely correct. We did see differences between those feelings. Uh, and another difference that we found was among those that were uh, a, of a minority group and those that were not, right? So uh, you know, those that were part of a minority group were much more aware of the... <laughs> They're of, like, where you been? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Precisely. So that we did see some of those kind of different splits but between the two uh, that I, I think is interesting, but not that unexpected. Mm-hmm. So you, you, di- you delved into uh, generational differences uh, beyond inclusion, of course. Uh, tell me about that. Is it, that, is a, that is a tough uh, idea to wrap your head around this you know, the idea of these large groups of people born at different times having, you know, sort of coalescing around ideas and behaviors. It's it's a kind of a minefield for a researcher, isn't it? Oh, yeah, but I, I live my life in minefields, Andrew. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, to be a researcher, you have to question things, and questioning things can be very controversial. Uh, did, I, did anybody in interviews get prickly? Perhaps. Oh yeah, mm. you, you always you you always encounter that, and and that's okay, right? We're all human. We have our differences, and we have our comfort levels with different things too. So that's that's not uh, not anything to <laughs> that's out of the out, out of the ordinary. So generations, they're interesting. I think HR did not do a very good job on average with integrating millennials into the workplace, mm. and. Part of that we found was because they started from this mindset that millennials were so different, 
that they were so yeah. exceptional. And, and I don't mean that in necessarily a good way, but they were so different. And because of that, they had to make all these changes, which then made everybody so angry that they had to make all these changes. Right. Millennials were demanding, you know, they, they needed more, more changes to accommodate them perhaps when that, I don't know if that's actually the case, but that was kind of what, that was what the memes were saying. Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and so when we embarked on this particular research trajectory, what we were really focusing on is, okay, is this thesis um, about Generation Z accurate? Because we started hearing the same rumblings, the yeah. same, like if you, if they just you recycled look at, <laughs> the same thoughts. If you look at some of these HR magazines and articles and, and things like that, they're using the same vocabulary and narrative that they were using with millennials. And so I was just like, is that really the case? It, are they so exceptional that we have to adjust everything? And our, our research says, no. So, of course, Generation Z comes with their own generational baggage. Every generation does. And you do have to make some type of change. For example, Generation Z, they really want um, to be part of something larger than them. And there's a whole reason why that we, we don't have time to get into, but I'll sum it up with, you know, outside of the workplace, we've lost a lot of our community-oriented places where sh- where we could share these, these common goals, especially in the time of a pandemic, but even before. These associations that we could belong to have been on the decline. And so Generation Z is looking for that place to be in the workplace is one of those places that they can be. And so they want to be some part of something large and they have a strong identification with a larger purpose, more so than any other generation. Millennials, I mean, they... <laughs> they do too, right? Yeah. But Generation Z even more strongly. So there, there, and there's lots of different different things about them. There are generational nuances, and and what I'm about to say, it doesn't necessarily negate that. But what we did find is that they were much more alike in most ways than different. Um, mm. For example, most generations have a focus on a culture. Regardless of if you're a baby boomer, Generation X, um, Millennial, Generation Z, you care about your workplace culture. Is it just the idea of the culture that that differs? Not even even, that, interestingly enough. Now, the degree of which you care may be a little bit different. And part of it is about life stages, right? So you'll find that Generation Mm -hmm. Z, they didn't really, they did not um, prioritize uh, financial stability, but most of them are like 23 or less. No surprise right? there. So it's really. not like they're really looking for a long-term home to settle into. <laughs> is that, uh, now, you know, correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but is that the great secret behind all the generational analysis is that, you know, they change as they age. And what was true about Gen Z or what is true about Gen Z now may not be in 30 years when they're in their 40s and 50s. I 100% think that we have ignored the big elephant in the room when it comes to generation. And that's just simply where you're at in your life. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And what you value out of your workplace is 100% going to change based on what you value in your life. Right. And, and that's not even that, that breaches generational lines too, 
right? So somebody that is married might look for different benefits in an HR package um, from an organization than somebody that is not married, that doesn't have a domestic partner, that doesn't have anybody to take care of, but it's just them. They might not prioritize adoption benefits. They might not prioritize, you know, things that others will, right? So I think that life, life stage aspect is really important and we often forget about it. Yeah. Although it's, it's, uh, it's a good idea to acknowledge that there is a difference between the younger generations and the older generations in terms of when they reach those stages, right? Because I know that millennials in particular are getting married a lot later than, say, boomers did. Mm-hmm. And they are buying homes um, later on and, and all of those different, or not, yeah, we're not <laughs> buying homes. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it's just, it, it's one of those things that it, there are differences. So again, there are differences between different generations, but I think what we found most interesting is that in the core things on what to focus on, there's a lot more similarities. And so HR, perhaps we should focus on those similarities between the generations first and really sure those up because that's not only going to make a great place to work for Generation Z or millennials, it's going to make gener- it's going to make a great place to work for all of the different generations. And why wouldn't we want to do that? So focus there first and then look at some of these nuances. And if you need to make adjustments, make adjustments, right? Generation Z is, is mixed on um, whether they want to work from home or in the office. So you're going to need to have a greater flexibility um, on your hired worker working kind of aspects for some jobs, right? You're going to have to, you're going to have to focus on, on or allow them to do things that maybe you are not necessarily comfortable with them doing. Mm-hmm. So covered inclusion, covered generations. There's a lot to cover in this report. We're not going to get to all of it. Um, if you want to get to all of it, Go read it on our website, uh, <clears throat> octanner.com, obviously. But I'm curious, your own personal perspective of this culture report, what was the, the topic or the, the idea that really captured you, really made you excited? It's a, it's a hard question to answer, um, partially because— Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for challenging me. Um, This culture report was really fun uh, because there's a lot of really nuancey things, a lot of really important topics. I think what resonated with me and what probably resonates with so many other people is this simple fact that last year was a year of crisis in so many different ways. It was a hard year. I struggled personally right? A lot of people struggled personally. And so to dive into the struggles of others during this crisis and what everybody was facing was really captured me because it, it, it can be really easy to get caught up in this idea that we're all so different. But last year was really not easy for most people. Yeah. <laughs> we the all, one thing we all have in common. <laughs> we all share something and share something pretty interesting. So that really captured me, this idea that for once we had a pretty unifying, not just within a country, but across the world, we had a unifying uh, 
experience. And what really hurts me the most is that we didn't use that opportunity to the greatest ability, right? We missed opportunities to actually connect with one another in meaningful ways and start to make change uh, in a way that uh, helps us be better connected with one another, right? I think we missed the boat there. I think we can still do it. I think 2021 provides us an opportunity to look forward on that. But <laughs> we we squandered an opportunity that could have been great. Yeah. Unfortunately, we were all, we all turned inward, I think. Well, maybe not all of us. Uh, I know personally, I, I definitely did. <clears throat> I, I, I became a bit more selfish, really. I was more worried about, you know, my own health, my own safety and stuff like that. And I, I did. I, I missed that opportunity to turn outwards and, you know, make connections with, with people when people well, needed it most, right? I, it's, a, it's a regret I have. And here's, here's my challenge back to you, though. And, and, and I only challenge you on this because I've challenged a lot of people on this, which is, have you become more selfish or have you decided that self-care is actually really important and you need to prioritize that? I think for many people, it's, it's the latter. I think last year stood out as a, as a time when self-care is no longer, um, foo-foo abstract. Like you could actually see the need to buckle Mm. down and take care of yourself. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> but I think you're I think you're completely right there. Self-care went from yeah, a luxury to a necessity. And and organizations need to entertain that, right? Yeah. And and self-care can look different for everybody. And when you have a hybrid workforce now where some people are working from home and some people are working, um, you know, in the office still, uh, you have to be able to find ways that everybody can take care of themselves. Um, And I think this has also renewed focus on workplace policies around sick time and even workplace norms around coming into work sick. I mean, think about how often somebody was sick, especially during the winter, and they would still come in and then half the office would catch it, right? That's no longer going to be socially acceptable going forward, and nor should it be. We should take time to heal ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I hope that in 2021, maybe 2022, we will all feel much better about taking the sick days that we need, not just for ourselves. I sure hope so. Well, I could really ask you questions about this report all day. It is so dense. Uh, it's so, so stuffed with insights and just really interesting uh, findings. But I want to ask you about next year's report. Haha. Because yeah, last time we had you on, we, we got a sneak peek at this year's. So I want the same thing. Give us a sneak peek. I know... You're still in, what, second phase of research? Yes, we're still in Um, our mid-phase of research, which means we've formulated the topics that we're going after. We have some operating theories, and now we're testing. You're honing in. Yeah, so we test thousands of hypotheses throughout the quantitative aspect, which is really fun. We have millions of data points that we play with. 
Yikes. And so it's, uh, yeah, you say yikes, I get excited, right? That's, <laughs> that seems that's, daunting. <laughs> that's where I play and that's where I love to play. So um, as, in regards to what's coming up this year. You can I, be cagey. Yeah, I, I, I'll get a little cagey, but I think I, I think it can provide you with a couple answers. Okay. Number one, I, I think I'm looking really hard at this concept of engagement. And we've never really sought to really focus on refining engagement. We've focused on culture, right? And culture fuels engagement or disengagement, right? Engagement is a cultural outcome. If you have a great culture, engagement is usually going to be pretty high. But I'm questioning how we actually think about engagement. And I wonder if engagement is more about the individual person and their psychological makeup and what they prefer to do or not do um, versus some type of abstract measurement that you can actually apply equally across an organization. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of merit in, in, in digging a little deeper when it comes to engagement. And, and if organizations are so focused on engagement, have they been measuring the wrong thing all along? And so that's, that's where I'm focused. That's one area that we're focusing on. Another area is to really deepen our understanding of experiences. So two years ago, we really focused on micro experiences and more macro experiences and how both are really important. And that's weaved itself through our culture report last year as well, or this year. Gosh, I don't even know what year it is. Um, <laughs> 2021. <laughs> thank goodness we're in 2021. So we really, we really focused on, on, on teasing that out. This year, we're really focusing on, on how do we actually measure the magnitude of a peak experience? What does that mean? So if you really want to create a recognition peak experience, what aspects really need to be uh, in that experience to make it impactful? And what aspects of the person matters in order to make it that personalized so it can be impactful. Uh, so we're, we're digging in in a lot of really fun places. As I say, that sounds very, uh, very interesting when you're talking about a macro experience or, or sorry, a peak experience, you're talking about something that usually applies to everybody. You want everyone to have this experience, but <laughs> thinking about that from the perspective of the individual, it, it suddenly you realize you, you don't have as much, control over that impact, right? Well, and that brings us to the last piece that we're really digging into is we're continuing our research trajectory on leadership because the person in an organization that is uh, most uh, impactful on that individual experience is the leader, right? I mean, you can have good team members, but if you have a horrible leader, you'll still not have great workplace experiences or you'll have on average more suboptimal experiences than optimal experiences. So, you know, we're really starting to dig into what attributes of a leader are needed to create that mixture of peak and good micro experiences that keep people engaged, that keep people at the organization and inspires them to do their best work. That's what we're really starting to try to tease in uh, and, and figure out. Well, I'm, really excited for next year's report but uh let's not forget this year's report is out um and uh, ready for everyone to dig into on their own time you can always go check out the executive summary and get a high level look at 
all the different topics that are covered and the key insights for each one of those. I really recommend that as a starting place for everyone. We, we spent a significant amount of time curating that executive summary uh, so that if you read that and only that, you should get the gist of the most important things in that report. And, and so if you are strapped for time, go read that first. And then when time comes and you need a little bit more detail into a particular uh, topic area, those chapters are going to be great. But we've strategically designed this report to so that every chapter can operate as its own uh, kind of report itself. And, and so if you only need some new information on recognition and, and recognition integration into culture, go to our recognition chapter. If you want to see our latest on modern leadership and the advances that we made last year, go to the leadership section, right? You don't have to read everything in that report uh, to understand what's going on in one of those sub-chapters. If you could snap your fingers and remove a corporate buzzword or phrase from the universe, what would it be? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, design thinking. I, I just, I, I think design thinking is a really cool framework and, and really advantageous, but it is not when people say design thinking half the time, they don't actually mean what design thinking is. And I would just like us to either get rid of it or make sure that we're all on the same page of that methodology for problem solving and creating solutions. Do you want to set the record straight? No, nope, I design don't. Thinking? No, yeah. don't, even, don't even look it up. No, nope, don't even just, look it up. I, I am definitely. That's not where I'm at authority, and I'll totally, I'll, I'll totally be honest. But I, I, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in where somebody's like, "Let's take a design thinking approach," and the approach that we take is not a design thinking approach. And then we tell everybody that we took a design thinking approach, and it, it's just. It, uh, it is not great. <laughs> Fair enough. Get rid of it. Who was the best boss you ever had and why were they so great? Ooh, that's a tough one. Don't feel compelled to say it's your current boss. I'm sure. I they was going to actually say my current boss. And, and, and here's the reason why Gary it has a phenomenal brain. And we have a really great relationship. We we work really well together. And he's somebody that I enjoy just rabbit holing into a concept with and just, you know, picking it apart and brainstorming and just having fun with it. Like that is just fun. Um, but what I really appreciate about him is is that we have you know, I'm, I'm an expert in my field. I'm an, I'm an expert in methodology, but I'm not, I don't have his operating data set. He's, he's been around longer than I have in this industry, but also at OC Tanner. And so I really appreciate being able to leverage that larger data set of his to help me make better decisions today, uh, but also to make, to create better research. So it, I, I really love it because we, we blend our skills so well together uh, and uh, I, I just, and he's just one heck of a guy. Like I just, I'm, I'm so comfortable around. I, I have trust issues from like, you know, all sorts <laughs> of professional things throughout the, throughout my life. Right. And, and he's somebody that I implicitly trust. I should have asked you about your worst boss, but this is, <laughs> this is not, this is not a, a place for venting necessarily. I, I don't, as much as I like you, Andrew, I don't want to have therapy on a podcast. 
uh, there are other podcasts for that. There are. This is not one of them. <laughs> Who are your heroes? I've answered this one before, and I want to like, be like, what I said last time. No, you um, can't say what you said last time. And, well, I don't remember what I said last time, and so that that's always, that's always a fun thing. I think this time around, I'm going to say my heroes are the people that – uh, are using the trials from last year to reshape this year in, in, and manifest the life that they want to live um, and the people that they want to be in 2021 that are fully leaving the past behind and letting the future lead. That is someone that's a hero to me right now because I don't think enough of us are doing it. I'm only barely starting on that journey and it takes a lot of self-discovery, openness, um, and, um, (laughs) trust in yourself. So that's, I'm going to leave it there. And I know that's a ridiculous answer, but, uh, not at all. Not at all. On the flip side of that, who are your villains? My villains. Um, I think overall, Regardless of partisan identity, political identification, gender, etc., my villains today are the people that only live in their opinion of things and don't, you know, proactively seek out different opinions in order to challenge their own mindsets and thinking. I think personally. Um, from a societal perspective, that we've damaged ourselves the most because we have hold up in these social media echo chambers that uh, don't give us, they give us the freedom to be really angry and to be right about what we're feeling. And that's great. We're always entitled to our specific feelings. And, you know, I'm never going to argue that. But just because you're feeling that way doesn't mean that it's the actual reality. And so people that don't challenge that reality are my villains right now because we continue to perpetuate big issues in the world because no one wants to confront it and challenge what they think in order to better create a middle solution so that we can just all move forward together. I think we could all use to sit in on more focus groups with diverse people like you do. It's, I will say as a researcher, I'm really grateful. Um, I've traveled the world. I've, I've talked to people of many different cultures. And what I'm most grateful for is the ability to really uh, hear and challenge my privilege, to challenge my thinking with the experience of, of others, right? And that's not something that everybody has access to. Um, and I do on, on a monthly basis, I am literally hearing how people are feeling and what they're experiencing. And it really makes me reconsider things. What was the last thing you read that's stuck with you? Uh, last time it was a book on minimalism. If I remember mm-hmm. right. Yes. I yes, assume yes. you stopped getting books after that one. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> ebooks. Ebooks don't take up space in a traditional <laughs> sense. You're an ebook hoarder. Um, I have been reading actually some investing books, which mm. has been fun. Um, 
I will leave you with a quote. I'm not going to give you the book because that's almost financial advice and we don't play that game. (laughs) Um, But a quote from one of the books that really has stuck with me recently is if we let fear master us, we are already dead. Oh man. That one hits home. It it's uh, yeah, it's, it's been rocking my world (laughs) as I've been kind of thinking and pondering about it. It might seem dark, but I see that as hopeful. I do too. We can can all use a little less fear in our lives. Hopefully, as we go through this year, as you work on next year's culture report, we will start seeing a decline in fear overall. Let's hope. I sure hope so. Well, I'm excited to see it. And I'm so grateful to have you on to talk every time. It's a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. Always love to do it. And I can't wait to have a conversation next year, too. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas off the mean streets of Baltimore and enroll them at the prestigious Maryland School of the Arts, where they join forces with an unlikely crew of outcasts to compete in an illegal underground dance battle that pits ballerinas against b-boys in an epic struggle of hip-hop choreography that for some reason takes place in the pouring rain and features one too many sideways hats and not nearly enough Channing Tatum. The first is that if we really want to increase inclusion, we can't just decrease exclusion and call it good. Reducing policies that exclude people, implicitly or explicitly, is only one half of the coin. We also need to make changes and enact initiatives that provide opportunities and attract underrepresented groups. Don't just take away obstacles, create more roads. The second is that self-care isn't a luxury. It's a necessity. And it isn't just a personal problem. It's a workplace problem, a team problem, a company problem, a humanity problem. Before the pandemic, self-care was often dismissed as something for self-help books and meditation apps to solve, not HR departments. But when the rising awareness of employee well-being in the 20-teens collided with the isolation and anxiety cocktail that was 2020, self-care leapt into the spotlight. Suddenly, everyone could see the importance of taking care of their own well-being, no matter what our job or title might be. What seemed selfish before was now necessary maintenance, something that, if not attended to, could quickly impact our productivity, our stress, even our health. It led to a lot of rethinking of the policies around sick time, flexible schedules, medical leave, and the balance between work life and home life. And hopefully, we're still rethinking. Because even though we've gotten used to the new normal, there's always a newer normal just around the corner. The third is that mental health days have gotten a bad rap, and it's time we did something about it. Sure, the term used to be used as a cute, winking way of saying you're taking the day off without filing it under PTO. But nowadays, mental health days are a totally normal and often very necessary way of coping with stress and anxiety and burnout and staring into the abyss. What can we do about it? Well, 
World Mental Health Day isn't until October, but I think we should all look at our calendars and set aside one day in the next couple of weeks to take off and use as a time to restore and revitalize our own mental health. Call it self-care day and spend it doing nothing or everything, whatever helps your brain feel better. Me? I'll probably bake a batch of miniature pies and leave them on the doorsteps of my closest friends because my self-care is baking. Speaking of, ah, mince me. As always, this episode was written and produced by yours truly, with original music and sound design by Daniel Foster Smith. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com. The Workplace is sponsored by OC Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. OC Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com. I like mincemeat pies. What is it? Why does it have to be called mincemeat anyways? It's so gross. Meat pies, great. Little chopped up bits of spices and fruit, great. No need to even use mincemeat.